Welcome to Sustainability Bridges, a URCIF podcast aimed at building bridges between policymakers, investors, academics, and civil society around the theme of sustainable investing. URCIF is the leading pan European association promoting sustainable finance and sustainable investing at European level. In this podcast, the executive director of URCIF will invite distinguished guests for a 30-minute conversation on current events shaping the sustainable investing community. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Alexandra Polinska. I am the executive director of URCIF. For this episode, I am honored to be joined by Helena Vines Piestas, commissioner of the Spanish Financial Market Authority. Together, we are going to discuss the evolution of the sustainable finance regulatory framework, leveraging on Helena's experience gathered through her involvement in the EU platform on sustainable finance and the UN Secretary General High Level Expert Group on Net Zero Pledges. Dear Helena, Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation. It's a real pleasure. Let's start with a question on the evolution of sustainable finance. You have worked on advancing sustainable finance uh, framework in both public and private sector for more than 15 years. What is your opinion on the state of play of the EU sustainable finance regulatory framework, development and implementation? What do you think should come next? Thank you, uh, Alexandra. I actually, I, I don't know if I ever told you, but I started in uh, 2003 working part-time for FNC Investments. At, uh, at the same time, I was volunteering at Global Witness. So I was in parallel for more than a year working in the city and in probably one of the most um, active NGOs that is Global Witness, an incredible experience. And I think at the time it it would have appeared absolutely unthinkable to imagine that one day we would have a full-on strategy in Europe to transform the financial sector and that that strategy would become one of the key pillars of the strategy in turn of the European Commission and the European Union. Sometimes I like to make the parallel between the Paris Agreement and the EU Sustainable Finance Package, because both of them require a lot of advocacy, a lot of years behind, you know, also campaigning in a certain way, a lot of boldness and highbrow thinking. Um, But both of them, once they materialize, mark the beginning of the end of an era. For me, the Paris Agreement marked the beginning of the end of the economic model that uh, based on fossil fuels and started that transformation of that economic model and then moved towards uh, carbon neutrality. In a way, the sustainable finance package marked the end of the traditional financial system within in Europe, right? And I, I do believe that many have not yet realized that the sustainable finance roadmap, you know, as it's call as well, you know, drama, also draws exactly that, a roadmap for transforming the financial system. It's not only about, sometimes we concentrate too much on the market of ESG products or green finance. It's not only that, it is about the transformation of the entire financial system. And probably one of the biggest contributions it has made is the fact that it has included the entire financial value chain and that obligation of integrating ESG, environmental, social aspects and governance in all throughout the value chain and for all the actors. 
Yes, it is about the contribution of the sector to the transition, but it's also about its transformation. And when we talk about climate change, it's about full decarbonization, the need to decarbonize credit and investment portfolios. And at the same time, you know, trying to help and finance the product services and technologies that we need in order to reach, you know, that uh, carbon neutrality and more sustainable and inclusive, you know, economic model. So these parallels, you know, are um, I think that is very interesting because both when it comes to the Paris Agreement, when become, it comes with the sustainable finance, we are in a phase of implementation, phase of advocacy, the high level ideas is gone. And now it's time for really engaging with the industry, taking care of the details, you know, amending what is not has work, revising, tweaking, polishing, all that, you know, that is a little bit more, less attractive in a way but in, at the end of the day it is about making it work and that includes developing the tools and facilitating the implementation just to give you an example alexandra i think it is also time to review the approved text of the different regulatory pieces that conform the sustainable finance package i keep saying that i see it um the sustainable finance package also like a big jigsaw where the central piece is a taxonomy, but all these pieces of this jigsaw have been developed, you know, in parallel. So now we need to make them fit, right? Like in a puzzle. So we might need to polish them a little bit to enhance the consistency. And you, you, you've seen that with this gasset previously. There are sometimes a little bit of inconsistencies between the uh, terminology, you know, between some concepts. Sometimes it is about ensuring that we're talking about the same environmental metrics and methodologies and so forth. And I think that's what we have been concentrated uh, quite a bit over the past, you know, I think. And I'll finish by just saying that while that is true, that doesn't mean that there are still some areas that might require a little bit more regulatory work. I will mention just a couple, like the Article 8, that although, you know, Article 8 registered products, that many people see as a category of products, which is not, it's just a transparency, yeah? If you register your product as 8, it just says what type of information you can expect. But it has created a lot of confusion within the market, the Article 8 and 9, and maybe we need to revise and set some minimum criteria, yeah? I also think that it's time to regulate data providers and also to start looking at the non-green bonds or use of proceeds instruments, they call themselves transition bonds or sustainability link. Thank you so much. And uh, well, speaking of actually complementing uh, the framework, do you think there is also a need to further complement the EU taxonomy framework to, I mean, or, or do you think as it is now can play sufficient role in terms of enabling the transition towards a more sustainable economy? It's a very good question because I think that while I hope one day we finalize, like, we, you know, the taxonomy in the sense of 
probably including the social taxonomy, also what I call the always significant harmful taxonomy and the amber. I am a little bit cautious in terms of the timing. Let me explain. I think that now it is a time where we need to make sure that it works what we have works. Definitely, we need tax of four, which is the taxonomy on the other environmental objectives. Yeah, so we have the climate taxonomy. Now we need for the rest of the environmental objectives. Absolutely. But then before going any farther in terms of making it, you know, like including probably the social and I said, um, expanding it to a potential traffic lights type, I think that we need to ensure that it works and we need to make the necessary amendments so it really works and we learn from that. And when, if we expand it, then we know exactly how. The, the reason, and um, there are several reasons, and you can find it, uh, many of them, in the data and usability uh, final report that we published in October. But some of them is because I'm, I'm sometimes we forget the taxonomy is like a dictionary and it has to be very granular and it has to be very specific because it needs to provide sufficient guidance for someone who is going to conduct a project or upgrade a plant. Therefore, they need to know. But at the same time, it needs to be workable and flexible enough for applying to financial products to someone who is sitting in an office and is looking at 10,000 companies at the same time. That, that gap that exists between one use and the other requires a lot of work in the sense of guidance, in the sense of tools, in the sense of what works and what doesn't work. And that's where we are at. And I think that it is a good, sensible thing to pause, make it work, focus on the implementation, in January is going to start the first year of reporting alignment. And this is, I mean, massive companies, but also, uh, well, financial product has already started. Yeah. Let's learn from that. Let's see what works not. Let's create the tools and then increase. In terms of expanding, personally, I have a weakness for the always significant harmful activities. And the reason is, and it's double fault. The first one is it is those activities that it doesn't exist a technological solution economically viable to transform them, to for the, make them uh, reach net zero. And at the same time, they have a replacement. So they are not essential in our economy. For me, are the real stranded assets. And from a supervisory regulatory perspective, identifying uh, stranded assets is really important for financial institutions, for financial stability purposes, but also to give that time in advance for them to progressively get rid of those in an orderly manner. But the second reason is because it seems to me that in the whole discourse around net zero and, and carbon neutrality, the elephant in the, in the room is what we're we going to do with all the assets and the activities that have no place and I think we need to start having that discussion and rewarding the decommissioning of those plans, of that, of those activities. And by creating or identifying the always significant harmful, if we do it in an intelligent manner, that is not to blame and shame, but it is to reward the decommissioning instead of just passing it to uh, somebody else 
then maybe you know we could you know really progress to reach you know that net zero. So I will put my um, you know emphasis when we expand it to that, and then of course social. But social is it is complicated because um, there is less consensus on what is a substantial contribution from a social objective and how to measure it. So maybe we should learn first from uh, the environmental one and then move into the social. But it's certainly needed at some point. Until then, I think that one uh, the priorities in the social angle should be to uh, harmonize the understanding of the how you implement the UN guiding principles on business and human rights and the OECD multinational guidelines and making consistent across the um, the entire uh, sustainable finance package. Well, thank you very much uh, for these insights, Helena. That's very valuable. Indeed, you know, it, it seems to me that identifying the significantly harmful activities and, and then also probably fleshing out those that do not have any significant impact on the environment, we could indeed complement the framework and what would be actually left in between would be the so-called umber intermediate zone, right? And to, to what extent do you think such framework could also somehow maybe help companies in terms of creating their net zero pathways, enabling to design and draw this, you know, kind of transition pathway that could uh, also enable investors to better uh, understand where companies are on, you know, on the, I would say, transition pathway and, um, you know, also compare them uh, across other companies from similar sectors. And do you think there is maybe a need for, I don't know, designing certain sectorial kind of pathways and, you know, trying to deconstruct in a way, um, I would say this, you know, big goal we have now to achieve the net zero, by uh, 2050. But, you know, I think there is quite a bit of debate among the companies, but also financial market participants, that in a way the challenge is um, is that probably for companies from different sectors, um, these pathways and by how much can you effectively or you should um, lower your carbon emissions year by year, Yes, it might be quite subject to what kind of activities you're engaged in. What are your views on that? I will start with um, one precision. So I think that the priority, as said, is on the always significant harmful for the reasons I mentioned before. Yeah. In terms of the the rest, I think that it's interesting because in a way we already have the amber and the red. What we don't have is that this thing, you know, we do because the minute you have the do no significant harm and the substantial contribution thresholds, everything in between is the amber. Yeah. It's just that for climate mitigation is very obvious in most cases when you use a quantitative threshold, like is the case, for example, for um, power generation. You have 100 grams of CO2 and then 270, so everything in between. But it's not so obvious when it's qualitative, yeah? And this goes back to my point of um, we need to now try to 
guide or translate the some of the qualitative criteria in where possible quantitative of process space or at least provide some guidance on how to judge them yeah, and how to assess them. I'm not so sure we need the never significant, you know, like it doesn't significantly contribute nor harm in the sense if we have the always significant harmful and we have, you know, um, do not significant contribution. We already have those, yeah. And one of the reasons why I was always a little bit cautious of creating, and I put it with inverted commas, this neutral taxonomy, activities that they are neutral, it's because... That refers to the actual activity. So, for example, I am a marketing company, yeah? So, yes, marketing is neutral, unless, obviously, I market, I don't know, fossil fuels or I market, you know, whatever it is. But, um, but I still, as a company, I still have a need, my transition plan, and I still can do a lot, and I can still use the taxonomy to, for example, renovate the building where my offices are, you know, the fleet, uh, you know, changing my electricity providers so I uh, ensure that it um, comes from renewable sources. All companies need a transition plan, even if for some it's quite, you know, like simple and probably easy to reach there. But still worth to really identify the always significant harmful. Also because I heard it before uh, saying, people saying, well, if you're not in the taxonomy, actually it's a good thing because it means that you don't need to really reduce your emissions, you know, to do that. And we keep forgetting that some activities that they are not is because they're always significant harmful. So I think that it will, will really provide clarity. In terms of the advantages, we talked before about, I think companies should be supported in their decommissioning and supported in uh, moving away. And that's one way. It's by being able to identify and then, you know, raise capital in, raise uh, finance in the capital market. But it's also, you mentioned the rest of the potential expansion of the taxonomy, the amber, I think it's very important. And particularly when it comes to CAPEX. Um, you heard me before, and I am a big fan of CAPEX. I think, I honestly think it's the biggest contribution of the taxonomy in a way and the biggest misunderstanding of how it works. Because those companies who are in the red space, so imagine we're talking about power generation, their um, plants are producing electricity, you know, emitting more than the 270. Yeah? But if they invest, imagine a company that has two plants, yeah, and then invests in reducing it to, let's say, 200 or 150, they're not yet in the green part, but they have substantially reduced their emissions, then, you know, that investments can be, you know, recognized that they move from the from the red zone to the amber, and that also can you know uh, help raise funds for those uh, improvements. So I am very keen on the amber, particularly when it comes to the capex. Yeah, recognizing that, and I think that the it doesn't even need to be in the legislation. I think that companies could describe right in their capex plans for whatever reason they might imagine there is a a technological reason why they cannot yet, you know, reach that 
uh, less than 100, then they could say, look, this is what we're doing. First, we're moving into the amber. These are the reasons, yeah? And then we'll move into the other. I think investors would appreciate that and will have, you know, um, confidence or trust into that company, especially if it's part of a bigger transition plan, you know, to reach net zero and it makes perfect, you know, and it's detail and it makes sense. You've mentioned that we are currently at the stage where, well, kind of early stages of the taxonomy implementation, which probably is one of the most challenging moments for the companies trying to become compliant with the rules and to implement them. You know, certain companies complain about the complexity of the EU taxonomy and how much it costs them to find solutions and get advice on how to implement. What would be your message for this kind of companies? I mean, as, as a kind of, you know, also, I don't know, looking into the years to come. And also overall, I would say looking back at your experience uh, within the platform on sustainable finance and tech, what would you say are the main achievements and successes of the group and the t- EU taxonomy overall? On the companies, yeah. I think that now um, it's going to be a very interesting moment because I think now one of the main things that we need to do is this. It's what I call the ants work, you know, like ants, yeah, which is the tiny little steps, which is really providing so many companies across Europe with helping them to interpret the, um, the taxonomy in the sense of, the activity, which activities actually are included or not, is not so easy. I mean, you would be surprised some of the of the questions that um, that companies ask because sometimes it's not obvious whether or not certain products fall into the taxonomy or not. I mean, being eligible, let alone then aligned, right? And then on interpreting the criteria, on assessing whether or not they meet. I think there is at the very beginning it's going to be meet a lot of guidance and probably it will require a lot of FAQs on behalf of the European Commission with the support of the platform. In the regulation, you know, uh, Alexandra, that a lot of the uh, of the do no significant harm criteria is based on regulations and on qualitative and there um, a lot of words reducing minimizing near yeah so what does mean near you know is it one k one kilometer or is it five kilometers so all of this needs a lot of refining and it's, it's just guidance yeah guidance for the companies in terms of the data usability group and the successes i think that one of the biggest successes was to put on the table and start the work on consistency and coherence I was mentioning, yeah, is that taking one step back and then looking at the different pieces of regulation, um, we look at CSRD, SFRD, benchmarks and ESG preference with the taxonomy regulation and then, you know, make proposal to make it more coherent. Like one of, for example, things that we identify is that there are four different definitions even if the principle is the same, of do no significant harm. What does that mean? How can we move it forward? Secondly is uh, give CAPEX the place it deserves. Yes, I think that 
there's not enough understanding on how CapEx, you know, places a central role in helping companies and other economic actors to access the capital they need to the transition. Yeah. And um, so there's a lot of need to make people understand how it works and how they can benefit. And the report, I think Data Usability Group has made a big contribution on that. The third one would be we put on the table different cases. So one of the things we realize is that, uh, once again, the taxonomy is the overall reference, yeah? But then it depends who uses and for what that might need little adjustments. And we have identified three particular special cases. SMEs, investments in developing countries and development, um, development finance, and then public finance. For each one of this, the needs much more work needs to be done and some adjustments needed. For example, um, in when you make an investment in the middle of, I don't know, like in the middle of Africa and you're doing no significant harm, you know, it's related to the management of waste. If there's no waste management proper infrastructure, you might not need, meet that criteria. And so should that be an impediment or not? We need to provide, because I think that if we need to be careful that the taxonomy doesn't become a barrier for investing where it's most needed, yeah? But at the same time, you don't want, you know, you, you need to be able to, how to say, to control it and maintain the ambition of the taxonomy. SMEs, there's a big question mark about, you know, SMEs for the time being, only listed SMEs are included in the, um, in the ratios of financial institutions, but we wish SMEs can also access green finance. So, but what does it mean in terms of the reporting? What, you know, um, are they really able to meet the criteria? Yes or no, more work needs to be done, even if the, the platform has done a lot. And something similar happens with public finance. There are differences, but still imagine Alexandra that a, it's the same company that on one hand is required to meet the taxonomy requirements in terms of for access in green finance, but then in terms of the a national state procurement, green procurement um, rules is ask different criteria, right? shouldn't it have, you know, be consistent, yeah? And what does that mean? So once again, more work uh, needs. And then lastly, I think it has been on the international considerations, but then a lot of work on um, trying, you know, and, and a lot of suggestions and recommendations to the European Commission on how to make the EU more internationally friendly. At the same time, on how to work uh, towards a common framework, um, between different uh, taxonomies. And finally, I would say to demonstrate the importance of estimates and how estimates are misunderstood. Um, there are many different types of estimates. Most companies will use certain level of estimates in order to calculate their own emissions. Estimates don't need to mean um, they're needed. It's just a question of how can we really set up a framework with strict and clear criteria to make sure those, those estimates are based on real information and that they're solid. And it's the only way forward for financial institutions to be able to uh, report on the totality of their portfolios.
That's very helpful. And and actually, speaking of estimates, I, I have um, uh, one question. C could you also share here with the audience what is actually here the, the, the final, say, at least for now, in terms of the rules and the guidance on allowing uh, the estimates? And also, I mean, uh, there has been quite a bit of, I think, debate about the different wording used, for instance, uh, in terms of estimates, but also what is meant as equivalent information. C could you shed some light on that? Absolutely. It's just that as for everyone to know, this is very much on the making, yeah? And it's very much the debate right now. Um, when it comes to taxonomy and when it comes to reporting taxonomy alignment at entity level for financial institutions, Okay, so under for those who are um, little geeks in terms of the uh, EU regulation, it's the it refers to the delegated act on Article Eight of the taxonomy regulation. Estimates today are not allowed. You know, you have to use the information provided, you know, directly from companies on taxonomy alignment. Um, yet. There's an article, it's under Article 7, if I recall correctly, 7.4, yeah, if I recall correctly, but basically says that subject to um, revision, a revision that is scheduled for mid-2024, estimates might be allowed for uh, non, basically non-CSRD Companies, so those companies that they don't have to report, you know, from a mandatory uh, point of view. Um, so this refers to the entity level. Now, financial products, uh, for financial products, what is allowed is the use of equivalent information that you just mentioned. Now, what equivalent information is, is yet to be defined because it's uh, the responsibility of the ESAs to, you know, define exactly what equivalent information should be. Now, what the platform, the data usability did is put forward a proposal of what we think, you know, um, equivalent information should be. And then we added that we think that that revision of um, schedule for mid uh, 2024 should use the same definition and framework that equivalent information, so there is consistency. Great, thank you so much. I, I think we could, you know, talk on that for hours, but now moving on to a kind of a more global, global level debate. Um, you serve as a member of the UN Secretary General High Level Expert Group on Net Zero Pledges. What differences have you observed in terms of the approach to sustainable finance uh, at the global level compared to the EU? Does Europe tend to be more ambitious? And if yes, do you think Europe has become a de facto leader of sustainable finance, helping drive the global ambition? I think the, the short answer is yes, Europe is, uh, without any doubt, a leader. I mean, probably with the exception of the UK, yeah, but clearly the UK has been directly been influenced by the EU and we're part of it, yeah, and the construction of it for a while. Um, you, you wouldn't find anywhere, at least that I know, any um, sustainable finance um, 
regulatory framework as comprehensive and as ambitious as the EU. And the perfect example is the taxonomy, um, which the EU, again, as far as I know, is the only one that requires, that is mandatory, both at financial product level and at entity level, to report on alignment. It's the only one that has that. And interestingly enough, it's the only one that has CapEx, right? And a lot of times we talk about these transitioning, you know, the colors, the traffic lights, um, um, taxonomies. And while I think that in the future, we should definitely, as we discussed previously, um, work probably on um, the expansion of the taxonomy, um, it's not as needed as in other places because we have the CapEx. And CapEx, you know, helps a company that is 0% aligned with the taxonomy from the revenue perspective to invest, to transform itself and be 100% CapEx alignment and attract um, capital through the CapEx. So I think it is, again, um, a big step forward. But moving away from the taxonomy, what it makes it really leadership is that not only the financial, uh, the sustainable finance package is extraordinarily comprehensive. And um, we said it before, includes all the actors uh, alongside the value chain. It is also revolutionary in terms of the governing principles. The sustainable finance package has brought in, has put on the table three key principles in my view. The first one is do no significant harm and do no significant harm to other environmental objectives. So really introducing the trade-offs between environmental um, objectives and how that is so needed. And, how, and let's be honest, the financial industry had not been very good at dealing with the trade-offs, but also do no significant harm you know, in terms of the social impact. And I think that's really important. The second principle is the double materiality. Yeah, It's a key. It has truly moved in a way. What it has made is that we effectively are moving away from a, a model that is exclusively centered on shareholders, so the shareholder model, to a more of a stakeholder model. And I think that is a big change and that is what shows you know that real transformation where basically what we're saying is that where you talk about shareholders where you talk about companies and the different um, institutions there is a responsibility towards society and the environment yeah and it's part of the duties i think that is a massive you know um change that i have not yet again seen elsewhere I guess, um, and, and I'll finish with this, the challenge for Europe would be, on one hand, how to be, how to make its whole package internationally friendly and operational, right? And at the same time, maintaining the level of ambition, yeah? And helping others to raise the bar elsewhere, yeah? We will be succeeded, you know, succeed. And particularly... Um, in the short term, I think that the current context is not very helpful because there are calls for slowing down, you know, on the ground. And there, um, there are arguments saying, well, you know, in order to preserve the competitiveness of our industry, we should lower the um, 
you know, lower the requirements for companies and financial institutions. And I think it is a point of view that uh, maybe it works for the very short term, but it definitely goes against, you know, um, the long-term interest of the industry itself, because we know that the in the long term, and, and I would say medium term, it is, you know, the competitiveness of the European industry, yes, and that... Com- um, that competitive advantage is going to be precisely on, you know, based on sustainability and the sustainable finance. I think this is where Europe has a real age, competitive age. Thank you so much, Helena. This uh, has been a very insightful conversation. Thank you for joining us uh, today and sharing your valuable experience and views. brings us to the end of this insightful conversation and the end of today's episode. Thank you very much for listening. Do not hesitate to like, follow and share this episode of Sustainability Bridges. Eurosif will continue in the next episode to bridge the gap between the policymaking and the practice of sustainable investing with the help of distinguished guests. In the meantime, please visit our website and follow us on social media to stay tuned. See you next time for a new episode of Sustainability Bridges.